Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. One Inch Exchange is DeFi's leading DEX aggregator that discovers the best trade practices across all DEXs. One Inch was launched in May 2019 by two white hat hackers at ETH Global's ETH New York Hackathon. One Inch has reached almost $7 billion in overall volume in just over a year. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto, all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. Today's guest is Marguerite DeCarcel, co-founder and CEO of Blockade Games. Welcome, Marguerite. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me. So you've had a pretty long history in crypto, and there's been a lot of things you've done. It's really fascinating. Tell us that story and you know how you got into this whole space. So this story starts a long time ago in 2013 when I was actually really into gaming. So I had these amazing gaming GPUs. And um, at the time, the person I was with was in the military, and they were in uh, like network. They, they were a network engineer. So they discovered Bitcoin around this time. And at this time, we could still uh, use our GPUs for mining Bitcoin. So we made a few rigs. We participated in the race for the GPU battle that happened. But right on the other side of that was the ASICs um, race for the best ASICs and setting up those rigs. Uh, so we took our funds, backgrounds of building computers and gaming and participated in the mining, early days of mining, uh, which is when script coins really came about, like Litecoin, things like that, um, and started participating in the culture, I guess, of the what we call today now crypto Twitter and that community. Um, from there, though, my actual background was fine art. So I had been a curator and gallery director for over five years uh, prior to mining the cryptocurrencies. And so I started to try to think about what is a distributed system? Um, what are these decentralized networks? How do they work? Um, what is a Bitcoin? Because it was a pretty abstract idea when you're being challenged with what is money. And I started following Andreas Antonopoulos early on. I, I pulled people onto these different, like similar to what we're doing right now, onto podcasts or shows and just asked them a bunch of questions. Because as a creative, I was really curious about what does it mean that these computers are essentially racing to solve these cryptographic puzzles? And when they do, one of them unlocks a Bitcoin reward, and that is money. And everybody on the network, all the computers agree that that is money, and they check it, and then they track it. Um, so th that was fascinating. So I started actually 
um, making artworks. First, portraits of people in the space that I thought were interesting and uh, participating for different uh, publications like Bitcoin Magazine. And then eventually I found myself starting to encode information into these portraits. Um, first, it happened with Andreas and Tanopoulos. I started using zeros and ones. And then I realized, oh, those zeros and ones could mean something. So the next one I did was of Amir Takai and Cody Wilson, which was my very first crypto puzzle. Um, and it was themed a dark wallet because it was a project at the time of this idea of using a wallet to mix Bitcoin for more um, anonymity. And when I was making it, I realized, oh, I should definitely hide something because of the theme. And when I posted this on Bitcoin Talk, I had no idea how viral it was going to go. It became one of the most viral threads on Bitcoin Talk in 2014. And I was kind of like, what did I do? Uh, so um, first, we had set up a few phases of this, what I call a puzzle trail. So one step leads to the next step and you uncover pieces as you go. And it, it was all across the internet. We even hid information on different wiki sites. I had to go and convince moderators of these wikis that to let me hide this information there. Um, and, and anyways, it, there were different events along that first trail, like such as a Minecraft server where all of a sudden these characters from Bitcoin talk and crypto Twitter were coming on board to this Minecraft server we had, were hosting that was a part of this whole puzzle trail. It was just the, my first real experience and deep dive into the crypto community for, from this creative angle. And it blew me away because I was not, um, I was not really your technical, you know, cryptographer. I'm not going to be contributing to our ecosystem in that way. But the playfulness that we unlocked in that first puzzle blew me away. And it led to basically six years of that type of work for um, different projects, helping people educate their communities uh, as a tool for community building. It's And it also, that type of um, crypto puzzle work attracts talent, dev talent, which makes sense if you think about um, some of these different processes to uncover talent. Like, I mean, you know, the CIA, we joke, they put out puzzles, cryptographic puzzles, and, you know, people that can crack them are deemed like as maybe suitable for, you know, it's like as a way to recruit essentially. Um, anyways, we, I've found so many amazing developers. So naturally over those past six years, our projects became more ambitious, more, um, just, we were pretty much making full-fledged games. So it was in 2017, end of 2017, that artists I had been working with, artists that were better than myself and faster that I had found along the way, and then developers that were brilliant, that we decided as uh, the cryptocurrency markets, you know, they started to rise. We had the Bitcoin bull run. One of my most famous pieces was solved, had been unsolved for three years, had five Bitcoin in the prize. We are at this place in our, in our history, um, our Bitcoin history, where we decided it was time to do something more ambitious and more serious. So we founded Blockade Games. That is the game company that, and we've, um, you know, we've released multiple different projects along the way, but um, I'm that journey of how we got to where we are today has been pretty fun and organic. Um, my CTO of Blockade, his name is Ben Heidorn. He, I, he was getting his PhD and in computer science and security. And I managed to talk him out of it. He only had one term left. And I was like, Ben, you know, you don't really need to finish this PhD. What we're doing is so much cooler. <laughs> and ever since then, uh, I mean, so yeah, anyways, Laura, that's, that's been the, that journey here in a nutshell. And we can talk more about those different projects under Blockade Games if you'd like to. 
Yeah. Well, so just one thing I wanted to um, clarify about the puzzles. Was it that once they solved the puzzle, then it would give them the private key that would enable them to take the Bitcoins locked in it? Yes, that's that's usually the final step. So along the way, you might get hints about how to uncover the private key when you get it. But it's going to be information that's, you know, encoded. It's been shifted. There's a cipher key required. I mean, there's all these little pieces that you collect along that whole trail that when you get to that final string of information, you'll know, hopefully, how to um, uncover it. And then for um, that one puzzle that was unsolved for three years with the five Bitcoins in it, how much was it, how much money was it worth in US dollars when you put that money in? And how much was it worth when the person finally solved it? I believe Bitcoin was about $120 a Bitcoin when I loaded it. (laughs) And then um, let's see, when it was solved, the sum was 50,000. And at the peak of that, it was worth 100,000. So when it was worth 100,000 was when this whole wave of reinterest um, came around it. And um, it was a couple, actually the, the group that solved it, uh, they had worked on it pretty much for three months. And I knew that it was close to being solved. I watched it being like on the Bitcoin talk thread, they were, people were really close, but then they just would talk themselves out of it. Like, oh, I'm never um, gonna be able to solve this. So it sat really close to being solved for a while. Um, but those developers who actually did that, they went on to, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Pineapple Fund. I am. That's the person who, at the height of the bubble, just decided to give away roughly $86 million <laughs> in Bitcoin because they had more money than they really knew what to do with. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, an, an amazing individual. And they reached out to me when this puzzle was solved and asked if we would do more work like this if they contributed funds for us. So that's when, about that time, February uh, 2018, we made Pineapple Arcade, which was, uh, we have since taken it down, but it was since, it was all these different arcade games that were crypto themed, such as a Pac-Man, but it's actually the Bitcoin chasing, you know, and then we had a Monero, a coin that would disappear. So just, we played around with remaking a lot of these old classic games, but they had in them uh, cryptocurrency prizes. So if you played a certain way or you figured out some Easter eggs, just like the old 80s games, a lot of times they had Easter eggs, uh, you would unlock prizes. And then um, actually the Pineapple Fund person himself created a, his own trail that was an in real life puzzle hunt that started from the arcade and then led people running around Australia um, to win some Bitcoin, which a lot of people don't know this story, but there were people that went to the extent of uh, hiring pe- pe- like people in England, hiring people through like almost a Craig's ad diversion to get people in Australia to go run around in national parks in the middle of the night <laughs> and look for these landmarks. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it's just, our space is really wild. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So one other thing that you did along the way um, was Plasma Bears. And it was, so why don't we just kind of fill in a little bit more of the history, but and then we'll get to Blockade Games and Neon District. Yes. So Plasma Bears actually came after Pineapple Arcade. It was um, as we were exploring, how would we build what we're working on right now, which is Neon District? Uh, as we were really trying to wrap our heads around what we wanted that to be, the user experience. And one of the number one things was a free to play blockchain game so that it could be open and inclusive. 
So plasma bears was basically, we tried to come up with a, a, a really fast um, application that we could build web-based application that took some of these bigger picture ideas to just test them out and see what kind of tech stack would be required uh, to build the larger version, which was Neon District. So Plasma Bears is essentially a, it's like a Build-A-Bear, if you imagine a Build-A-Bear, uh, where, but it's five separate NFTs, non-fungible tokens. The head is one, there's two arms, two legs, and then the belly. We worked with artists in the, in the crypto space, which um, back then, it, places like Super Rare and Known Origin were still just kind of coming together. This was also in 2018, um, in, the, in the end of 2018, early 2019. But I reached out to these different artists because a lot of them did really neat texture work, like um, GIFs or GIFs. And we then basically skinned the bear parts with these GIFs made by these different artists. So we made a huge library um, of those skins. So you could have aesthetically different looking bears. There were whole sets, but there was this game of trying to complete the set uh, to if you wanted to. But then you would take these bears on a text adventure. And as you played the text adventure, uh, you would receive like bear parts that were had better, um, better stats. So they had a breakout of, you know, their agility, strength, things like that uh, associated with each bear part. So you were basically leveling up your bear piece at a time so that when they would go on these text adventure missions uh, that were rated by difficulty, according to the dif different stats. Yeah, so and it, it was neat because the bears also had personalities. So if you had mostly sad bear parts, your bear all of a sudden would be an animated sad bear on your webpage. Um, so, and they were fun to gift. So this was all free to play. So we had people that were children, all the way to like my parents and other people's grandparents able to go to this web game. It was on, at the time, what was called Loom Network, uh, which was a, an Ethereum layer two uh, network, which is no longer around anymore. But um, it allowed players because it was so cheap and we could just take care of everything on the back end. We could control, you know, run the nodes. It was somewhat centralized. Like you wouldn't think of this as a financial network. You would, this was a playful uh, exploration. So anyways, um, yeah, it was so cool to have people playing and not cost anything and sending bears across social media. So you could drop a claim link to a bear on Twitter and someone could click it and then to own it, all I would have to do is put in basically a username password and that bear would be in their inventory. And then we had a gateway where you could send those bears out to Ethereum. Interesting. So, you know, I mean, this is like really fun and fascinating. It just sounds, yeah, like, like a, a fun thing that anyone could do, but obviously you're using blockchain technology for a reason. So what problems exist in gaming that you think blockchain technology can solve? So for my own gaming experience, um, I have multiple times gone through the process of what's called uh, grinding, which is where you're playing these games and you're trying to get to, let's say, level 20. And once you do, maybe you realize the characters that you were developing along the way aren't the ones you actually wanted. This is something you would see in World of Warcraft, something like World of the Tanks, a lot of open world games. And um, that's frustrating and you get burned out. So players go through something called burnout. And I felt like blockchain opened up this opportunity from our experience with crypto puzzles and seeing people feeling incentivized for the treasure hunt, that digital treasure hunt experience to unlock something valuable. I felt like we are in a place where the actual journey itself could be the process of creating the value 
And therefore, when you leave, you're leaving with that value with you. So while people would tell me the crypto puzzles, they felt like, well, even though I didn't win, at least they learned something. You know, that's like, I guess, a positive way to look at it. But in this case, you could learn something and also have almost memorabilia from it's like having swag from the experience, having there's people that have played Neopets and there's a game called Neopets. Um, and they talk about how I, wow, if I still had my Neopet today, I, that would have such sentimental value to me. Mm-hmm. So these are um, basically digital goods and your game assets being digital goods. And as a space, uh, as a content creator space, we are unlocking currently what is possible with, um, with digital goods and digital durable goods. So, so there's this time money investment problem that blockchain um, games are exploring. And then there's also, as we're talking about that Web2 content and Web3 ownership and trying to close the gap between the two, um, what we're finding is we have unlocked basically a, like a, div- a new type of development ecosystem for, uh, for creatives, essentially. So while we have the financial markets and, and cryptocurrency for fungible assets, being able to have uniquely identifiable dynamic and, um, and now like even with interactive, as we're exploring interactive non-fungible tokens and we're starting to use programs as NFTs, that the space is evolving so rapidly, I guess, that this developer playground and content creator playground that we're co-developing together um, is fascinating. So, so I, I think as any content creator could probably speak to the problem of creating something virtual or digital and it not feeling like you could capture, you're capturing the value of being able to sell it historically. And now we're at a place where artists are just basically flooding into our space because of this new opportunity. Interesting. Yeah. I totally understand that as a creative myself. So why don't we then now talk about your company, Blockade Games? What are you doing? So we're using the idea of, um, well, I'll speak more specifically to Neon District in a second, but when I think of the, when we think of uh, digital goods, I think of how they still require some sort of bridge to interact with them. Um, the game is that tool. So we're basically creating a platform in which users can take their assets for, that they own and have a way to interact with them and develop them, craft them and bring them into, um, make them their own essentially. And so like, the game is that tool to bridge the gap in my mind between the content creation web two and the ownership of web three. The, uh, the blockchain part of the game is, is actually just the fact that you own these assets. They live on the distributed networks. What we wanted to do with that was create Neon District, which is a cyberpunk role-playing game. Uh, think of... Uh, Final Fantasy VII, any Final Fantasy game really, or Zelda. These games are um, immersive storytelling, very, very rich in storytelling about the hero's journey, um, character development. So role-playing game from, um, you think of Dungeons and Dragons or a a lot of board games where you have a dungeon master that sits at the table with you. There's an emphasis on story and being immersed. Um, The other part with game with the games though is the art. So even like Final Fantasy as an RPG really broke the ground as far as um, beautiful art and games together. So Neon District wanted to tie 
since our, our community, our crypto community seems to resonate really well with cyberpunk and that, that sci-fi genre, we wanted to make it really rich and beautiful. Uh, in, a, in if you've ever read Snow Crash or um, Neuromancer or like any of these classic sci-fi books, it has this gritty, edgy uh, feel to it. It's very colorful. So we spent a lot of time actually developing. We have over 10,000 art assets that um, you can use and craft cyberpunk characters. And you can swap out the different components. Like I was talking about plasma bears before, where it's five different NFTs that you compose into the bear. It's similar with these uh, cyberpunk characters, except it's much the um, they're much more complex as far as their character class, meaning the types of characters they are and their role they play in your gameplay. So, um, so we've unlocked not only that artistic composing part, which I'm very passionate about just with my own background, but also um, the ability for player versus player and taking these assets that you own, showing them off against another player. So what we see on December 15th is for the first time, after three years of development <laughs> on this game, um, you will be able to invite another player to play against your own characters. And you're going to be learning how the game mechanics and everything work. There's the, um, there's a lot to the actual game mechanics of Neon District, such as there's card games involved, there's your characters' attributes. But the most exciting part is it has active animation, it's active gameplay, um, which is pretty big. There's not very many PvP active uh, games in blockchain. I can't, I don't actually know if there is one at the moment. They're usually passive. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, this this sounds really interesting. Um, one thing I was wondering is you talked about kind of like certain complex things that you could do. And I heard an example that you gave on another show about the dungeons. Can you walk us through that and how, you know, that's kind of like a uniquely crypto thing where, do, do you know what I'm referring to which part of the dungeons the um about I, how you can create these contracts that people have to sign when they start and then well so i'll just say it um you were saying that basically you could design your own dungeon and you could have some kind of stipulation that you know if the other person loses then they have to forfeit all their assets yes so um so in the future i imagine that we could do something oh, oh it's not part of the game now not currently, oh, but, okay. but it is something that's on our minds about how we can, t- as, for example, um, right now you're going to have the PVP rollout and then Q1, you're going to have the campaigns, which is basically being a, it's kind of like a dungeon sort in, in that way, but it's player versus computer. So we've set up the story, we've set up everything you're going to experience and the drops. Uh, we are basically acting like the dungeon master, but beyond that, there's opportunity for players to collect uh, backgrounds, art, uh, different components, land, and pick plots on grounds, establish what would be considered a raid. So if you're familiar with World of Warcraft, again, any of these open world RPGs, set up a raid in which you can create a boss character who could hold the center of your dungeon. You can drop monsters. You can can customize and define uh, the experience. You could set the rules, and then you could place bounties so people could see what prizes they have a chance of winning if they go and explore this dungeon. But there could also be stakes placed such as, but if you lose, you, this this is what you're going to lose. And it would be something where if you agree to that contract, 
that asset, that whatever you've risked would probably go into escrow. You would play the game. If you lose, you would lose that asset in escrow. You don't have to do it that way. Um, you can do it so there's much less at, at stake. But um, the idea that we can do that is pretty fun. And I am someone that loves the idea of permadeath with these game characters. So if you tell me that there's an opportunity to go do something high risk with my game characters that I have maybe crafted and spent a lot of time on, when I lose one, it's going to be devastating. But when I win, it's going to be amazing. And I think this is a like emotionally, you you would have to sign something away that says, you know, you're not going to cause trouble if you lose. But um, (laughs) but I think the emotional feeling, even when I played, there's there's a game called Darkest Dungeons. and it has characters that's almost similar where you send them on dungeon quests like this and they're emotional. So they go crazy and you have to keep them, uh, you have to keep them sane and healthy. Otherwise they start to perform badly in the dungeons and sometimes they even hurt each other or there's all these little things about their, uh, their psychology. But anyways, they die. And when they die, it could have been a character that you've been taking care of for a long time and you have rehabilitated multiple times. It's just devastating. And I imagine, because we haven't done this yet, but I imagine it's going to have a similar feeling. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for players to, like I said, the game works as this tool layer for us to give you something that becomes an interactive play field. And there are some other new behaviors in gaming that I think non-fungible tokens or um, crypto collect- collectibles are enabling in Neon District. Like I've also heard you talk about farming there. How are you using that? Yes. Um, so the farm, like uh, farming with, there's two different ways that this could happen. One is in game where you could, while you're actively playing the game, you could be accruing uh, different cryptocurrencies or different NFTs unlocking as a reward for your gameplay. Um, there's also the idea of actually, I so recently I launched a token, a personal creator token called Coin as a way to interact more with my development developer community and my content creator community. Uh, and if you, for example, were to stake a game character, maybe it's a high level game character and you're staking it, it could have a chance of having a nice yield on coin or some of these other, like uh, there's another token called cred, which is basically the underground like street cred currency of my community. That uh, So like, there's a lot of playfulness that we can have where you can play because it's not all locked into one application. We can take these assets and um, yes, we have an 1155 NF non-fungible token farm. We have 721 farms. We really just have knobs and levers to pull and play with as far as giving gamers new opportunities to um, explore what they can do with their assets. And so just explain the difference between an ERC 721 versus 1155. So the 721 is its own, like is the contract. Whereas the 1155 NFTs all exist within the contract. So they are not uniquely identifiable as the same way as a 721 is. They are oh. like, consider 1155 a batch. Oh, okay. Which is, which is like better for developers in a lot of ways for um, just resource, like resource management. Okay. And you've also been doing some fun things with NFT farming and sharding, which sort of marries NFT with DeFi. Can you explain how that works? Yes. So um, there's a, an exchange called NIFTEX exchange, um, exchange. And what what it's being used for is taking things like high value game assets and high value art assets, uh, basically anything that's an NFT that's considered high value. And the sharding is 
basically it gets sharded into ERC-20. So it's a, the ERC-20 becomes a fractionalized representation of the NFT. What we did uh, was we created a, a farm where you stake, uh, you can stake coin, cred, or if we were working with a partner right now, it's RNG, uh, which is Richard Kim from Galaxy Interactive's community. Um, it's like a gaming focused community. Anyways, they're staking too right now, but we switched that out sometimes. Anyways, you take these tokens and you can stake. And what you're yielding then is this ERC-20 fractionalized representation of the NFT. And when it's complete, then what happens is we turn on um, the shotgun clause. The shotgun clause means that anyone that now owns one of these shards can make a bid on the entire asset. And what will happen is that will price their shards. So if you know if I own 10% and I've put a one ETH bid, then I'm, my assets are uh, proportional to that. So if someone wants to out, they can either buy my shards from me, off of me, or uh, they can counter my bid. And we've seen some of that activity, but what we found is because of the nature of how involved it is, it's uh, what I would call inventory management with uh, the high, when we were doing a high turnaround of the different farms and the different pieces, that we're going to focus more in the future, longer farming times with higher valued pieces um, so that it's really something that people want, uh, which is I think I love the concepts and they're very cool, but we're still really early. So right now it's definitely experimental. Um, but yeah, there's something to pay attention to because fractionalized ownership of NFTs, if you think about, uh, you know, this in regards to the Mona Lisa or something else, art like historically, then uh, we saw an, an Axie Infinity asset. Um, one of the Axies started out at a 40 ETH valuation uh, prior to being sharded and then the bidding war for that Axie went on beyond 140 ETH. I don't even know what it finally settled at, but um, pretty wild how how it was. It became a whale game, essentially. Well, yeah, that's what I was wondering about. When people can just buy their way into highly skilled players or owning valuable objects or into high levels of play, how does that affect the dynamics and the fun of playing the game? Or how do you kind of like account for that in your game design? Absolutely. So, um, actually, historically, there's a open, having open economies and games is like, it's something that big game companies stay away from because it's so hard to do. So it's not, if you talk to, let's say, um, Fortnite, Epic Games, uh, Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic Games, it's not necessarily because they're not doing blockchain because they don't believe in the technology. Um, it's because it's a very hard, difficult thing to do. Um, so yes, you, like we saw, I think it was Doom, uh, three, the, no, Diablo, sorry, Diablo three had an open economy and it destroyed all the whales, bought all the high valued assets. And then the game was no fun for anybody. Uh, so it's the, is the auction house. Um, it's, it's something that a lot of people point to when they say this does not work. But, uh, if you take something like magic, the gathering, for example, uh, which is, a lot of the backbone of Neon District is inspiration is card game meets RPG. So in Magic the Gathering, for example, you can have a high value card, but if you don't know when to play that card at the right time, it doesn't really matter that it's valuable. I mean, it can be valuable for lots of different reasons, for the art, for the addition that it was a part of historically, that it was owned by a pro player at one point and won in a certain tournament. Um, so there's different 
there's different reasons why something can be valuable. And then the when to play the so basically imagine um, a, imagine like a sledgehammer and you know a sledgehammer is going to be very powerful and decimate your opponent. Okay. But let's say what you actually need is a screwdriver, a certain type of screwdriver, and you have to use it at a precise moment. Now that is a lot harder and you have to be smart and thinking ahead and, and have the ability to use that asset at the right time. That's the difference in uh, the different style, like these, how you design the game. It's, it's called a wide game design versus a vertical game design. So the vertical de- game, game design is basically a power ladder to become the most powerful, whereas the power is distributed in Neon District across a wide, um, it's, a, it's a, a wide design. Okay. Yeah. So I guess even if you could buy some of the fancy players or objects or whatever, if you don't use it well, then you're just going to have wasted your money because you'll lose it right away. Yeah. Um, well, you're just, you won't understand how to use it and you won't be able to recognize it's the strategy and the mechanics of the game. It's, it's like chess, right? Like, um, it's, it's like, it's basically like chess on steroids is, is, is the, how like strategic the game is. Okay. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about how games can use blockchain technology and also turn to more on how all this can affect creators. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. OneInch is a decentralized exchange aggregator that sources liquidity from the top DEXs and liquidity sources to save users money and time on swaps. OneInch is capable of finding the best possible trading paths and splitting them among multiple market depths. Recently, the OneInch team unveiled OneInch version 2. The main highlights of V2 are Pathfinder, an API that contains a new discovery and routing algorithm, and a new intuitive user-friendly UI. The V2 improvements ensure the best rates on swaps while dramatically cutting response time. Back to my conversation with Marguerite de Corcel. So one other thing that I've heard you mention about how blockchain technology could be used in video games is for um, big decentralized profiles. What does that mean in gaming? Like, why would a decentralized profile be so powerful? So this is something that actual game companies are really interested in. Um, I know firsthand that, for example, Epic Games has slots uh, that they basically have slots for different user identities that they're placeholding right now. Um, and so this distributed network of decentralized identities, taking that off of the game companies as far as being in charge or like being responsible for user identity um, is a big deal. It means that we can allow players to opt in to things they want to be targeted for uh, that's outside of a game company. So, and the game companies can pay attention to that information that users are sharing. And so, um, so for privacy uh, reasons, this is allows us to interact better with our users that want us to interact interact with them. So, if I am a t- certain type of uh, gamer, I'm playing these games, I'm sharing this information, I'm a social influencer. I can select that I'm a social influencer. I can put in and like valid verify across my different social influencing accounts. Um, the game companies can see that 
see this information. They can see what I like to do, what I what I'm playing with. Uh, with blockchain assets, I if I'm sharing that information, you can see what types of assets they have. Game companies can target you as a user and give you uh, other opportunities that uh, almost as gifts. One, it allows us to find our users better or d- different types of users better. The yeah, so those are the different reasons why decentralized identities are exciting um, and profiles are exciting. So. And so are you trying to angle Neon District or or any game that you create through Blockade Games toward crypto people? Or are you trying to draw in regular gamers who would then have to be introduced to some of these new blockchain-enabled concepts like NFTs and farming? And, and if so, then how do you introduce those concepts to them? So originally, the vision was to just drop a game to the mainstream market and let them uncover that it was a blockchain game. But um, what we've since actually decided to do, since we developed such a core crypto uh, community, is we are going to use that audience first and foremost um, as we basically iterate on top. So instead of waiting for the entire game to be done with all the features, uh, which would be needed for a public release for mainstream gamers, you would need to have all their normal things they would expect in a game. With the cryptocurrency uh, gaming community, we can actually release earlier. So we're releasing early and we're going to be adding those features as we go, but off of what our users want. So the goal is to still end with a game that the mainstream user doesn't doesn't need to under, like realize that it's a blockchain game. But we're going to go ahead and start with our cryptocurrency community that we've already cultivated. But for uh, just a regular gamer, do you feel like there will be a learning curve for them? Like, oh, now I can sell this, you know, valuable sword that I earned or, or do you know what I mean? Like, or do you think it'll just be pretty natural and easy for them to get those concepts? I think it's going, there's going to, going for right now, for this next year, at least, there is going to definitely be a learning curve. Um it's going to, there's going to be uh, this whole, you know, we need to have the magical moment that happens for users to be like, that might, if, if you can think back to the first time you sent a Bitcoin, right, to somebody else, and it actually, you pay, maybe you actually paid for something with it a long time ago. And you're like, what did I just do? We need that same experience for the gamers and these, and the, with the, this content. So, um, being able to have this sword and sell it. And now you have your first cryptocurrency and maybe you actually didn't spend any money to get it. Maybe it was literally just your skill set that allowed you to cultivate and craft this piece. Um, it, maybe it's a sword and you go and you sell it. Then, so in the district, we can cover your backend transactions so we can get you to the Ethereum mainnet since we're on a layer two solution at the moment without you actually um, having to have cryptocurrency, but maybe you have to spend, you know, cover something for the transaction. It can also be your in-game currency that you um, have just accumulated along the way. So mm-hmm. you make this transfer to Ethereum and now uh, that marketplace will prompt you to have your MetaMask wallet or whatever wallet you'd like. So that whole onboarding marketplace process, uh, at least for this year one, year two, uh, we will love to have the, our own marketplace enabled and people to just trade directly from the application itself. But regardless, my point is the magic moment of being able to trade that asset that maybe you never put any money into other than your gaming skill and your time and get your first cryptocurrency. And if that's the way you get your first cryptocurrency, I think that's going to be such a hook for people to understand these economies we're creating. 
Well, so you mentioned that you're on a layer two network for Ethereum, and that was something I was going to ask you, because obviously one of the biggest problems in crypto sort of generally, but especially in Ethereum right now is, uh, is and, and in particular for, you know, these smart contract type transactions is the scaling issue, you know, bumping up against the throughput on some of these chains. So what blockchain are you using? And um <laughs> Is it something where if your game takes off even as much as crypto cookies probably could have done it, you know, because it was limited by Ethereum, it didn't really grow as much as people thought. But um, but if it were to take off as much as crypto cookies might have, then will your uh, blockchain that you're currently on being, be able to handle that? So it's a, we, I was actually just talking to Ben on Blockade CTO this morning and exploring about like, okay, so what if we hit a million users, a uh, million daily users? Like, what would it look like? And you're still going to have scaling problems. It, this is not like a, a magic solution. It's though it's optimized so that 7,000 transactions per second uh, from, for the Matic network, which is uh, what we've landed on. And it's also, um, there's still the opportunity though with, I, as I'm sure you've been following with Ethereum too, uh, with optimistic rollups and how successful those are. So if we hit a place where we start to bottleneck because of transaction scalability, we can, um, we can explore doing something like a rollup as well. Um, but I really don't think that's going to happen in the immediate future. Um, so with the 7,000 transactions per second that we'll have on Matic, we have the ability to have a pretty robust, uh, vibrant game with lots of users. And why did you select Matic? You said also that it was very easy to connect to Ethereum. So how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so we have um, both Matic has their gateways. We have gateways to Ethereum there. It's it's very cheap. It's like something like one ten thousandth uh, the cost of making a transaction on Matic <laughs> than it is Ethereum. Um, it's it's the they match their addresses. So your Ethereum and Matic address are um, are the same. And it's also, um, it's, it's 100% EVM compatible. So if you're an Ethereum developer and you wanted to build on Ethereum and you feel like you're somehow being bottlenecked because of Ethereum or it's too expensive and our user experience isn't what you really wanted it to be, Matic was a solution for us to get all of those things we wanted and still have um, all the benefits of Ethereum, essentially. So um, it, it works right now as a layer two, which is, I guess, in my mind, it's probably the most successful layer two uh, currently. And how does, um, you know, having these different blockchain technologies in the game affect the business model of blockade games as opposed to a traditional gaming company? So we can have, um, we can take cuts from the secondary sales across, uh, as these assets trade over time. Um, there is, you know, the question of, yes, we're not a walled garden where we're going to be reaping the benefits of the rewards of all the sales. Um, but that's also like we were talking about the new content, the this new developer ecosystem, where when you build very robust communities that are rich, uh, and so in our case, it's going to be rich in story and art and, and also just the experience. What happens is developers come and build supporting uh, basically experiences to for these assets. And they do this because there's... One, are a, a lot of these indie game developers are very highly experimental and they're not doing it necessarily for the money. They're doing it just to see what happens and because it's fun and here's a community they can interact with that's established and maybe they really resonate with the genre. Um, so the, the open um, 
that open ecosystem, developer ecosystem that this unlocks is something that hasn't really been explored yet. You can look at examples like Minecraft and other uh, other games that have developer ecosystems. But in this way, like if let's say I'm a developer and I, I have collected a whole bunch of a certain type of asset, I can build an experience around that. So now all of a sudden, those assets are more valuable. We saw that with CryptoKitties where they took a certain type of cat, uh, some developers took a certain type of cat, they, they bought a whole bunch of them, and they created a game, a racing cat game, just for those cats. And so then the Dapper Labs team was like, well, what just happened? Why are these cats so expensive? <laughs> and, that was, and, and, and so like, that's there's just a lot of opportunity for people when they own these assets to explore new business models themselves. We The business models that are spinning up all over the place around content um, from just being an artist. So things that don't even have utility at all, just from brand recognition and, and content creator recognition, assets are selling. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention to people like Beeple, people like Beeple. Uh, Beeple, he's a, he's a pretty famous artist. Um, his work is selling like crazy. He was a, He's a traditional concept artist. Um, definitely worth checking him out. There's the uh, musician, the indie uh, musician, RAC. And yeah. he he's, he's t- teamed up with, um, other, so since he's doing the audio, he's teamed up with other content creators, like the visual side, and they're selling these NFTs that once again, they don't have utility. They're just collectibles. Um, so when you think of game assets as actually being something with utility that are playful, like I would like to argue that I think it's going to be a stronger and more, uh, defensible ecosystem at large than what people anticipate. Hmm. And so this isn't like super germane to the crypto audience, but I am so curious. Do you think that traditional gaming companies will be disrupted by this technology? Or do you think that they are just going to end up taking advantage of it and incorporating it into their existing games? I think that users are going to really enjoy the idea of asset ownership. And when they start to realize they can have business models themselves around games that they interact with. So if I am a Twitch streamer and people are dropping me asset game assets that now I own, um, and my audience is also participating and I'm getting, I'm being gifted assets to give to my audience, uh, my streaming audience. And um, as I interact with these, these, assets, they become more valuable. So now people are buying them from me at a much like for a much higher price just because I played with them and they're my fans. Um, that whole business is going to be something hard to pull people away from, especially as we see this. I mean, streamers and content creators are really taking off all on its own. So you add that additional Web3 ownership component to it. And um, it's going to be is I, I think we're just going to have so many fun, creative indie developers coming over and collaborating with these content creators that game companies will have to come up with some sort of strategy. Um, and it might not be blockchain, and it, but it might be something that feels or looks like blockchain, some sort of user experience that mimics it um, to keep people interested in staying over where they are. But yeah, when people are making money and and becoming more successful for doing exactly what they already were doing already, the, yeah, that's where I see the blockchain space really taking off. 
Yeah, it's something that I'm really excited about. And you're actually already taking advantage of this a little bit. Um, You know, you're an artist or more generally a creative person. And that's a group of entrepreneurs that traditionally have gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to traditional content distribution models. So what problems in content creation business models do you think blockchain technology could solve? And how are you already kind of trying to do that with your social token coin? Yes. Um, right. So actually that like, like you were talking about, um, when I first got into this space as an artist, um, man, I was shipping artwork around the world, paying for shipping it, uh, competing to get into these galleries, which would then take 50% of the cut of my art. Um, Mm. I was not enough for it to be a viable, like livelihood where I could support myself as we're seeing artists come into our space and support themselves and, Granted, it's going to, I'm sure, get harder to be seen or recognized as it becomes more populated. But the fact that we have the tools and people to capture the value of direct sales like this to consumers right across the internet um, using the blockchain like and these assets and asset ownership, that to me was so powerful. And we're just unlocking, like we're just seeing these artists and the artist markets really take off. That It was funny to me because I feel like this was something that was apparent a few years ago, but somehow the wider cryptocurrency and Ethereum communities just, they almost had like blinders onto it, but now it's actually becoming mainstream popular um, and cool. So there's a coolness factor that's happening too. Um, but so anyways, the uh, social token uh, or the creator token with coin, as I've built a fan base since the beginning with doing the crypto puzzles. And, you know, I, I tend to People call me a people collector because I find talent and I pull them in and I keep them close. And so I have a lot of artists, a lot of developers that I I think are awesome. And from there, they bring in others that we all think are awesome. So because it's like big family, essentially, and we called, uh, so my token coin is actually a part of what we call Coins Eden, and it's a syndicate within Neon District. So I have declared myself the boss of the syndicate. Um... And I established the token economics so that I was the boss and I'm the largest holder of the token. And I get to, fi- I get to say what happens at the end of the day. But, <laughs> and then there's this whole hierarchy of, um, of the syndicate. And you can work your way up through like having more coin, um, to have different roles. And those roles, we will apply different functions as Neon District evolves the game. But the idea is that we potentially will have multiple syndicates and people could come in and stake a syndicate. And with um, there's something called collab.land, which interacts with Discord. So it reads the, the tokens that are in my wallet, my coin, or it could read any of the tokens I have. But in this case, in my Discord, it's coin. And people are automated like, into these different roles that are private. So no, they're not accessible to anyone that's not basically a part of the syndicate. Um, this is where this is the community I go to when I'm doing something crazy, like I, I want to start a new farm. And these are the mechanics I'm thinking of. I just you know, very rawly drop those ideas to these folks and we brainstorm. Um, we all decide what makes sense, doesn't make sense for our community at large. And from there, I'm actually able to take coin and um, for developers, like there's this project called Beyond NFT, which is a is a project focusing on developing interactive NFTs, which I'm really excited about. So we will support that development with coin. The idea is that as we just target where our funding goes, we bring that value directly back into the community by interacting and playing with it. So, for example, we just made um, on the side of Neon District development. Um, I always got really into chess. I've always loved chess, but 
with the Queen's Gambit happened. And it clicked to me that this is a perfect game for our for the Ethereum ecosystem to play with. Um, if as far as being able to make chess pieces, defining since now uh, NFT support uh, web files, three D objects. So we make these three D objects. We set uh, basically what was needed, the specifications of those chess pieces for for an artist. Then we also set the specifications what would be needed for a chess web game. We put bounties on that game development. Um, we are actively developing chess pieces. Other people now are sending me messages of the chess pieces they're developing. And this idea that we can have chess wars with different assets um, from boards that could also be NFTs, environments that could be NFTs, different types and variations of chess games. Um, anyways, going on a tangent here, but talking about, I guess, cultivating interesting activities that where developers can shine, content creators can shine, um, artists can make now basically these 3D sculptures and, you know, paint them, texturize them however they like. And it has immediate utility. So I was talking about before how, you know, all this high end value art is selling, but there's no utility. But when we make things that are universally have utility, it adds this playfulness that allows us all to interact with each other, which anybody in the space knows that we are obsessed with our community. Um, like across crypto Twitter, even just the developer space, content creator space, we are very social. Um, so bridging that social into some sort of fun gameplay is going to be really neat. Um, anyways, Laura, I don't want to keep rambling. <laughs> well, one thing I, that wasn't clear to me. So when people buy these different 3D chess pieces and stuff, then where do they use them? Is it just like a specific blockchain chess game that they can use them in? Or can they take them like, yeah, how, how does that work? So any, so basically any developer that supports the files, um, the objects and designs a game, a version of the game, all of them are supported in these very, like various games. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, we put bounties for that development. We have, I know two groups that are actively developing games currently and how they monetize it. That can go a few different ways. They can issue their own chess pieces as part of it, or they can also like maybe take a, a fee for when two people decide to go PVP. Okay. And so just to go back to coin, um, what is it that people do with coin and, you know, how do they earn it or how did you release it? Or, and you did talk a little bit earlier about how that's then connected to yet another coin called cred. But if you could just go over again, like what the difference is between the two and how people earn these. So the reason um, I launched coin was actually earlier this year when COVID hit, uh, we had been fundraising for about six months. And it became apparent that it was going to become it was a different landscape for fundraising for a while. And we didn't know how long. Um, so actually blockade really, we got lean and we started bootstrapping uh, from that point forward to get to actually where we are right now with our launch date. But in the meantime, we decided, okay, we need to really lean on our developer friends, our community, our fans to help us get over the finish line. So launching coin was a way to bridge again. Um, after, so I had, I guess, previously been straight out of the community. My projects had always been just collaborative with, with the community side by side. When we launched Blockade, it became this separation. And I felt it and I actually didn't like it for, um, you know, two and a half years, just almost like this wall of, uh, I can't really interact with my, my people anymore in the same way because now it's, it's, there's just this weird dynamic about, well, I'm not hired for Blockade. I'm not like, there's a different conversation. Um, so, 
coin allowed allowed me as a as my individual self not being under blockade to reconnect with uh, my user base. And I what I did was I fraction I myself uh, what I said was so you have to you have to roll with the story because it is just basically abstract. But I minted an NFT a representation of basically my brand identity. Um, and then fractionalized it, so sharded it into ERC twenties. So from there, we distributed to everyone that was a long time holder of um, so a trophy holder, which is people that have historically solved my puzzles across the years. They have something that's called a trophy um, for, to a, a a key, a founder's key, a neon district founder's key. So we had some distribution uh, in that regards, and then I sold crypto puzzles. Um, I made a series of crypto puzzles that you had to own the crypto puzzle in order to have access to the experience and to solve it. Uh, and then it had a pretty large bounty of coin associated with it. From those sales, I actually took the Ethereum and I seeded the Ethereum and coin pair on Uniswap. So, and we started at lows, actually 10 cents a coin when we launched the market at that price. And then the market naturally just went up to 30 cents a coin. And from there, it has fluctuated. You know, that's, uh, quite a bit, <laughs> but um, but the the whole I guess the exciting part about that is it's now allowing the success of everything we're doing, what the community does, what I do. If um, Blockade will accept Coin, it becomes this like ecosystem where everybody can share a little bit more directly in the success of things we're involved in. And when we add, when we decide to um, basically incubate different projects. And they want to stay a part of the ecosystem, that value comes back to us. Uh, so with the cyberpunk genre intersection that I sit at with Neon District, uh, in this past year with Coin, I've actually been connecting with a lot of cyberpunk type content creators, both audio, like in, in um, music styles that are associated like synthwave, um, different art styles like that. And we've actually made now a more robust cyberpunk community of these types of content creators, which who have accepted coin, who now want to work for coin and also just um, have found different people, I guess, that we resonate closely, more closely together as content creators. What all of this I see is a major win for as we're rolling out Neon District, because the idea of Neon District is to have a very rich um, developer and content creator community around it so that we can explore all these and keep playing and being experimental about what is possible with NFTs. And you also have something called coin artist liquidity mining, which um, translates to calm. What is that and how, is, how does that work? So in order to keep our, um, basically, to, so there's enough liquidity for us to basically sell if we need to some coin to pay for development for other, you know, for whatever projects we want to support. We are allowing people that want to support uh, the community and efforts, um, basically to become a liquidity provider by providing Ethereum and coin to the Uniswap pool, oh, the pair. And then they receive what's called a liquidity provider token. That's proof that they did this. They bring this over to um, coinartist.io, where we have the, the um, liquidity mining um, initiative. So you stake that token. And then what you're earning back is a percentage over time of coin and also a bonus token called CRED. So CRED is this currency that basically is proof that you have contributed to the um, viability of the coin ecosystem. And what we do with CRED is across our different um, stores, such as the chess store, such as uh, Neon District Assets, 
basically cred provide cred holders can just place an offer in cred and we generally will just accept it. Um, you will also have limited opportunities with cred. So for example, there's some, there's an asset called uh, the, the death Knight That is one of the most prized uh, set positions in neon district of as far as his alpha, the cyberpunk outfit for the, this character. And um, there's a blade that's coming out, the Death Knight blade. So there's a few people, myself included, that has worked really hard to get the complete that set. Um, there's not very many of them. There's only 25. There's going to be 25 of these blades. And we're talking about allowing there to be an auction using cred as the way in which you can. So one will be like the loot box option to get, which is a random chance of getting this blade, but then also an opportunity for cred holders to have the opportunity to make bids on the blade. And the only reason you would have cred, it's not listed anywhere. The only way you could get it is from being an ecosystem, um, you know, someone that has helped the ecosystem through the liquidity mining. And yeah, so there's a lot of ways with the game, both the game company um, through other exploratory projects we do uh, that we can really, I guess, honor the cred holders. And not only that, but cred holders are actually bartering cred with each other now with assets, which is pretty cool. So it has, like when I referenced before, it becoming like the underground currency. It, it is like the next level cool currency. Like if you're a cred holder, it's almost like, you know, you're one of us. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The in-group. Um, so I was so curious. I mean, you kind of talked about, yeah, just like your role as, you know, a creator of the games, but then also your individual um, persona or or just your individual relationships, frankly, in the crypto community. And I wondered, so when you switched from doing the games to offering this token, what was the reaction to that? When I switch, you mean like alongside doing the well, games? Well, not switched, yeah. But like, you know, when you introduced this new social token, what was the reaction to that? Um, a lot of people were excited. Well, so I was exploring with the whole social influencer space in general because I personally don't really want to be a social... That's a lot of work to be a social influencer. And I don't really want to be one. But what I see is that there's such an opportunity for new businesses there, um, business models around having a creator token, social token, and being a social influencer. So I actually... Um, the, the reaction was excitement, really. I would say that I had a lot of positive reaction. I think, uh, if anything, I get in trouble sometimes when I push things too far. Like, you know, I'll, I, I, if there's a red button, I'm probably going to push it <laughs> sometimes. And there was a case of uh, people just getting really grumpy on, on crypto Twitter about girls taking selfies and then tokenizing them or taking pictures of themselves. I just thought it was silly. So anyways, I just, I had fun and did my natural trolling with that where I would still like, I would make it and still sell it. And, um, and there's a fine line there that there's a lot to be discussed in that area, but social influence and what it should be like seen as and how it should be marketed. Um, you know, that, that's a space that will be explored, but anyways, so the social influencer piece though, I've taken that idea next level where taking it off of me so much as being at the center and looking at people like um, Alex Botez, who actually is co-owner of the chess store Get Pwned, which is uh, what we launched. This is what we're um, basically where we're minting these chess pieces from on OpenSea. She yeah, is, she's uh, a very accomplished chess player. Yes, she's very and she's incredibly talented both at chess and actually also in, 
engaging and entertaining. Um, she has a dynamic with her sister. They're both influencers. Uh, her sisters, they're both gamers. And then they also do these intense chess matches. And, and she's a great educator. So what people don't understand with stream, a lot of these um, social influencers is that they are like educators, entertainers, like just all these things all at once. Um, her being able to give these chess pieces to her audience as a gift, um, us figuring out how do we do that? How do we bridge this gap with people that may not have a MetaMask wallet? So we're exploring those ideas, but also when she can actually play against other people with these 3D objects when we have the games developed and we can do giveaways afterwards with these pieces that we're played with, we're going to be starting to really explore some of the ideas I'm very excited about and I think is the future. Um, and it's, I just, I love that I have was given this opportunity to work with her. I actually, um, I, it was funny because I was a fan of hers. And then I found out that um, Alex Atala, who's the CTO of OpenSea, and her went to school together at Stanford. So we were able to close that gap really fast as far as like, um, let's do this crazy idea. And just, I'm, I couldn't be more happy that she's been willing to explore it with us. Great. All right. Well, this has been super fun. Where can people learn more about you, Blockade Games, Neon District, Coin, Calm, Cred, <laughs> and anything else you're working on? Yes. So um, things that are related to Coin are, you know, coinartist.io is the site that has a sidebar that has information there. My Twitter, coin underscore artist, is probably where I'm most active. Uh, the Neon District uh, account is Neon District RPG. That's the Twitter account. In the bio there, there's the link to the Discord. The Discord is where we do all of our community interactions. And that's where Coins Eden lives as well. So if you ever become a coin holder, uh, you'll have access then to the private syndicate as long as you have five coin. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's pretty much it. And the game is coming out. Uh, the first phase of the game is December 15th. And that will be targeted. The first pass will be for trophy holders and gaki holders. And from there, we will uh, keep releasing invitations to folks that want to comply. Perfect. That is the day that this show comes out. So um, yeah, I think people will be excited to play. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Marguerite, Blockade Games, Neon District, and more, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. <laughs>